Let's hope you never need to use this information. In this session, we will cover cardiac arrest during pregnancy and some of the techniques have changed. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the fascinating world of obstetrics and gynecology. This is Clinical Pearls. All right, let's get right to it. Cardiac arrest in pregnancy is one of the most challenging clinical scenarios and obviously one of the most devastating. Although most features of resuscitating a pregnant woman are similar to standard adult resuscitation, several aspects and considerations are uniquely different. The most obvious difference is that there are two patients, the mother and the fetus. Now, before we get into the specific techniques and the algorithms which we're going to cover, let's review some of the important physiological changes in pregnancy. Cardiac output rises 30 to 50% as a result of increased stroke volume and to a lesser extent, increased maternal heart rate by about 15 to 20 beats per minute. Systemic vascular resistance decreases as a result of an increase in several endogenous vasodilators, including progesterone, estrogen, and nitric oxide. This leads to a decrease in mean arterial pressure, reaching a nadir in the second trimester. The enlarging uterus can produce increased afterload through compression of the aorta and decreased cardiac return through compression of the inferior vena cava starting as early as about 12 to 14 weeks of gestation. As a result, the supine position, which is the most favorable for resuscitation, can lead to hypotension. Now, we'll cover maternal positioning during CPR a little bit later in this session. Additionally, remember that uteroplacental blood flow increases from 50 mLs per minute in the non-pregnant state to close to 1,000 mLs per minute during pregnancy, and that represents about 20% of maternal cardiac output at term. Additionally, remember that functional residual capacity decreases by about 25% during pregnancy as the uterus enlarges and elevates the diaphragm. Increased ventilation, an increase in tidal volume and minute ventilation also occur, beginning as early as the first trimester, reaching a level 20 to 40% above the baseline by term. And this is mediated by the elevated serum progesterone levels. Oxygen consumption increases because of the demands of the fetus and maternal metabolic processes, reaching a level 20 to 33% above baseline by the third trimester. The reduced functional residual capacity reservoir and the increased consumption of oxygen are responsible for the rapid development of hypoxemia in response to maternal hypoventilation or apnea in the pregnant woman. All right, before we get into the specific algorithm and the management protocol for cardiac arrest in pregnancy, a quick word about the management of the hemodynamically unstable pregnant patient. I don't need to tell you that the 
first issue is rapid response to the unstable patient so that we can try to prevent cardiac arrest. Rapid response to instability in the pregnant patient is essential for prevention of cardiac arrest. Maternal hemodynamics must be optimized, and that includes correction of hypoxemia as well as establishing intravenous access and administering fluids. The patient who is hemodynamically unstable should be placed in the full lateral decubitus position. Remember, that's full left lateral decube in order to relieve the aortocable compression. Now, this is different than doing compressions for CPR. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. Then, for the medically unstable patient, we should administer 100% oxygen by face mask to treat or prevent hypoxemia. Intravenous access should be established above the diaphragm to ensure that the intravenous administration therapy is not obstructed by the gravid uterus. And lastly, any precipitating factors should be investigated and treated promptly. Well, let's say that didn't work and that sucks because now we've diagnosed cardiac arrest. First responders should be able to initiate the usual resuscitation measures simultaneously, including placement of a backboard and provision of chest compressions and appropriate airway management. Defibrillation, when appropriate, should be used, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Manual left uterine displacement should also be done in lieu or instead of a full maternal tilt. We'll talk about that in just a minute. To accomplish all tasks effectively, a minimum of three or four basic life support responders should be present for the pregnant patient with cardiac arrest. As with adult resuscitation, high-quality chest compressions are essential to maximize the patient's chance of survival. For high-quality chest compressions, the patient must be supine on a hard surface with left uterine displacement taking place instead of a tilt. We'll cover that in just a minute. The rescuer's hands must be placed correctly and the correct rate and depth of compressions must be performed. Now, what's the issue with this backboard? Well, traditionally, the recommendation was to use a backboard despite insufficient evidence for or against the use of a backboard during CPR. But if a backboard is used, care should be taken to avoid delay in the initiation of CPR just to get a backboard. And this is because every minute obviously counts. Chest compression should be performed at a rate of at least 100 per minute at a depth of at least 2 inches, allowing full recoil before the next compression. There should be minimal interruptions, and the rate of compression to ventilation should be 30 to 2. Interruptions should be minimized and limited to 10 seconds, except for specific interventions like insertion of advanced airway or use of a defibrillator. The patient, again, should be placed in the supine position for chest compressions, not on a tilt, but we should still use manual left uterine displacement, and we'll discuss that coming up next. There is no literature examining the use of mechanical chest compression devices in pregnancy, and at this time, those devices are not advised currently. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Let's deal with this issue of aortocable compression. When I trained on maternal CPR, we were taught to put the mother in left lateral tilt at 30 degrees to get that uterus off the inferior vena cava. Yeah, but now that's probably not correct. In the pregnant patient, for sure, supine positioning will result in aortocable compression. Relief of that compression must be maintained continuously during resuscitative efforts and continued throughout post-arrest care. But how you relieve that compression has changed. Now, manual left uterine displacement is recommended instead of left lateral tilt. Chest compressions performed with the patient in a full tilt could be significantly less effective than those performed with a patient in the usual supine position, and this could have a major impact on the chance of successful resuscitation. In the non-arrest population, manual left uterine displacement compared with 15-degree lateral tilt has been shown to result in less hypotension and a significantly lower ephedrine requirement during a delivery. Additional benefits of just manual left uterine displacement, which means using the hands to move the uterus to the left at the fundus rather than putting the mother in the tilt, this has been shown to result in less hypotension and better resuscitative efforts. Additional benefits of this includes better access for both airway management and defibrillation. Now, while manual left uterine displacement is performed, the patient can remain supine and receive usual resuscitative efforts. Well, what about hand placement? There is no scientific evidence to support changing the recommendation for hand placement for chest compressions in the pregnant patient compared with the non-pregnant. Previous guidelines recommended placing the hand slightly higher on the sternum in the pregnant patient, but there's no scientific data to support this recommendation, so don't do it. Ooh, what about the shocky shocky? What about defibrillation? Let's talk about defibrillation issues during pregnancy next. Prompt application of defibrillation in the setting of V-fib or pulseless ventricular tachycardia is critical to maximize the likelihood of survival. There is no difference in the pregnant patient. Transthoracic impedance remains unchanged during pregnancy compared with the non-pregnant state. Therefore, the energy required for defibrillation during cardiac arrest in pregnancy would be the same as most current recommendations for the non-pregnant adult. Application of defibrillation and cardioversion shocks to the maternal chest would be expected to pass minimal energy to the fetus and is considered safe for all stages of pregnancy. So you can use defibrillation during pregnancy because the alternative, which is death, is worse. If you're shocking a pregnant patient, don't worry about fetal monitors. The presence of fetal monitors should not deter providers from the use of rapid defibrillation when indicated. When indicated, defibrillation should be performed in the pregnant patient without hesitation or delay. The patient should be defibrillated with biphasic shock energy of 120 to 200 joules with subsequent escalation of energy if the first shock is not effective and the device allows this option. Compressions should be resumed immediately after delivery of the shock. 
for in-hospital settings where staff have no EKG rhythm recognition skills or where defibrillators are used infrequently, like in the OB unit, the use of an automated external defibrillator can be considered. Well, what about arrhythmia-specific therapy during cardiac arrest? Medical therapy during cardiac arrest is no different in the pregnant patient than in the non-pregnant for patients with refractory, that's shock-resistant, V-fib and tachycardia. The drug of choice is amiodarone. In two separate randomized trials, amiodarone has been shown to improve survival to hospital admission compared with standard of care with lidocaine. Now, remember that amiodarone can be administered in pregnancy for this indication because the alternative is death. In the setting of cardiac arrest, no medication should be withheld because of concerns about fetal teratogenicity. During active CPR, the focus should remain on maternal resuscitation and restoration of maternal pulse and blood pressure with adequate oxygenation. During this time, evaluation of the fetal heart will not be helpful and carries the risk of inhibiting or delaying maternal resuscitation and monitoring. Now, should the mother achieve return of systemic circulation and her condition be stabilized, then fetal heart surveillance may be instituted when deemed appropriate. Now, that's a good segue to talk about delivery and the perimortem C-section. Here we go, guys. We're at the end of the podcast, and this is pretty traumatic. The purpose of timely perimortem delivery is twofold. The first is facilitation of resuscitation. If cardiac output has not yet been effectively established, relieving that aortal cable compression by emptying the uterus significantly improves resuscitative efforts. Second, and of critical importance, is early delivery of the baby. The second patient is accomplished with a decreased risk of permanent neurological damage from anoxia. We'll talk about timing next. Now, in situations where the mother is non-resuscitatable, like severe trauma is present, then timely delivery of the fetus is essential. It's important to remember that not every pregnant woman in cardiac arrest is a candidate for perimortem cesarean delivery. The decision depends on whether the gravid uterus is thought to be interfering with maternal hemodynamics. Now, why perform perimortem cesarean delivery in this case? Several case reports of perimortem C-section during a maternal cardiac arrest have resulted in return of systemic circulation or improvement in maternal hemodynamics only after that uterus was empty. The critical point to remember is that both mother and infant may die if the provider cannot restore maternal blood flow to the heart. Historically, the five-minute window was used in terms of timing for the perimortem cesarean delivery. The five-minute window that providers have to determine whether cardiac arrest can be reversed by BLS or ACLS was first described in 1986 and has been perpetuated in specialty trainings. It was recommended that perimortem cesarean delivery begin at four minutes to affect delivery by five minutes in order to prevent chronic fetal anoxic injury. This time interval was chosen to minimize the risk of neurological damage, but also to try to help speed the success of maternal resuscitation. 
Here's reality, however. Very few cases of perimortem cesarean delivery fall within the previously recommended five-minute window because a lot's going on at that time. However, survival of the mother has been reported with perimortem cesarean delivery, listen to this, up to 15 minutes after the onset of maternal cardiac arrest. So, if the perimortem C-section could not be performed by the five-minute mark, it's still advisable to prepare to evacuate the uterus while the resuscitation continues. Now, at greater than 24 to 25 weeks of gestation, the best survival rate for the infant occurs when the infant is delivered no more than five minutes after the mother's heart stops beating. At gestational ages greater than 30 weeks, infant survival has been seen with delivery occurred greater than five minutes from the onset of maternal cardiac arrest. In other words, the earlier in the pregnancy, in the viability that the child is, the less time you have. The later in gestation can buy you a little bit more time. In a recent retrospective cohort series, neonatal survival, remember this is just survival, not talking about neurological status, was documented even when delivery occurred up to 30 minutes after the onset of maternal cardiac arrest. So that's a clinical pearl. Well, that was a lot of information about cardiac arrest in pregnancy. The source of this podcast, the reference, was the American Heart Association, their scientific statement on cardiac arrest in pregnancy. This was published in 2015 in the journal Circulation and reaffirmed again in 2016. Thanks for listening to Clinical Pearls.